There's rather a favourite anecdote of mine um, concerning Paul Dirac, um, who supposedly, whilst he was working alongside Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer at uh, Göttingen, um, said to him, Oppenheimer, they tell me you are writing poetry. I do not see how a man can work on the frontiers of physics and write poetry at the same time. They are in opposition. In science, you want to say something that nobody knew before, in words which everyone can understand. In poetry, you're bound to say something that everybody knows already, in words that nobody can understand. <laughs> so, for the next 15 minutes or so, um, I'd like to suggest that the relationship between science and literature is not always as oppositional as, as Dirac would have it. Um, certainly, in the 17th century, the relationship between the two was not simply considered as complementary, but as necessary. So literature is the vehicle through which science was disseminated. And this is, hang on, do I just, no, I don't know why I'm struggling with that. There we go. Um, so Hooke's Micrographia provides a really fine example of a text that sits somewhere betwixt and between the two worlds of literature and science. It makes a potent mixture of persuasive rhetoric and clinical objectivity. Pepys, as we've been told, um, was intoxicated by Hooke's language. Famously, he couldn't put the Micrographia down. Um, he's reading it frantically until two in the morning. And I would wager that there are very few 21st century scientific publications <laughs> that would be quite as compelling. Um, so to take a closer look at these two supposedly competing registers, I'd like to draw upon uh, Hooke's observation 39 um, of the eyes and head of a grey drone fly. Um, so this is, this is a, a kind of truncated description that he gives, of the, uh, uh, the la larger, longer description that he gives us. And I'll just, I'll just read it through, um, just to give you a sense of, of how, how his language works. The greatest part of the face, nay, of the head, was nothing else but two large and protuberant branches, or prominent parts, A, B, C, D, E, A. The surface of each of which was all covered over or shaped into a multitude of small hemispheres placed in a triagonal order. That being the closest and most compacted and in that order, ranged over the whole surface of the eye in very lovely rows, between each of which, as is necessary, were left long and regular trenches. Every one of these hemispheres, as they seemed to be pretty near the true shape of a hemisphere, so was the surface exceeding smooth and regular, reflecting as exact, regular and perfect an image of any object from the surface of them as a small ball of quicksilver of that bigness would do. But nothing ne'er so vivid, the reflection from these being very languid, much like the reflection from the outside of water, glass, crystal, etc. So, Hooke's passage on the drone fly reveals his attentiveness to language in two main ways, innovation and visualisation. And I'll spend a few minutes on each, beginning with innovation. So Hooke is so keen 
to convey exact description, exactly what he sees, that he creates new words when established ones don't quite fulfil his purpose. So in this short extract, we have one example, which is triagonal. And this is the term's debut in the English language. It's Hooke's own term for triangular. Much more popular was trigonal, um, which had been used since the mid-16th century um, translation of Euclid. Later in the same account, um, and I think much more interestingly, we have Hooke using the term, the adjective hemispheric instead of hemispherical. Now, hemispherical had been in popular use and, in fact, was used by Robert Boyle, but Hooke prefers hemispheric. And the reason why he uses hemispheric is, of course, because hemispheric suggests or conveys engineering. It conveys a sense of design, of purpose. Um, as, as Alan has been, has been talking about previously, um, Hooke is fascinated by this sense of purpose. And, and we see that echoed in the language of this passage, the fact that um, they have been, uh, the, these lovely kind of rows um, have been arranged, they've been shaped, these hemispheres, um, that long and regular trenches have been left um, as if by an intelligent designer. There is a further explanation as to Hooke's uh, innovations in language. Um, and that is that scientific discourse is so new in this period that it didn't have established terminology. And that's in part what the Royal Society is trying to do at this point. Um, in, in Hooke's era, they're trying to create a reliable shared language. Now, the Royal Society initially exchanged ideas in Latin, and its decision to shift into speaking in English, its decision to shift into the vernacular, was itself a radical revolution in language. Now, the reason why they shifted to English, of course, is because the language is much, much more open to innovation than Latin, um, and, it, and it readily adopted this burgeoning discourse of science. Um, so not only do we have the introduction into the language of, of labels for equipment, so telescope and microscope, both of which enter into the language in uh, 1648, but we also have terms for substances, so acid, for instance, 1651. Um, we have invisible forces being labelled gravity, um, and gravity in terms of gravitational force only enters into the language in, in 1692. Electricity, 1646. Um, we have numerous anatomical terms. Um, uh, really, really interestingly for, for Hooke is, is, is the cornea, um, which he talks about actually in, in his dissections of the fly. And there's a rather nice irony that the Royal Society's motto is, is nullius in verba, so on the words of no master. Um, yet its members, like Hooke, prove themselves time and again to be masters of words. So as far as Hooke is concerned, the micrographia um, reveals an author who saw the English language as open to similar advances as the science of, of vision in which he was engaged. And it's in visual language that we encounter Hooke's particular skill, um, which is accuracy of description. So Hooke is exceedingly good, exceptionally good at visual orientation, in part because of his descriptive specificity. So we encounter a lot of very specific quantities in the micrographia, and Alan spoke about some. In this description um, of the fly, he estimates the number of hemispheres as 14,000, um, which is quite the number to have spent counting up. Um, and again, um, in, the, in the extended version, he comments on, on two degrees of bigness of these hemispheres. 
Um, we also get an, an, a visual orientation of the hemispheres which looked upward and sideways or foreright and backward. And this clarity of description in language is reinforced by the remarkable diagrammatic accompaniments of his text. And this, again, you've seen it already, but, but to show you again is, is the fly that he's describing in that passage. So these images, these wonderful images that, that Hook creates, at points are folding out to four times the size of the body text, four times the size of the folio page of this volume. Um, so an example is the flea, which is absolutely gigantic. Now, in, in these images kind of folding out, being unfolded, the reader is invited to participate in this visual practice of micrographic observation. They themselves are enlarging these images. So Hook doesn't just leave it to language, he's, he's also relying on, on illustration as well. And the importance of these images for the text is evident from the continual interruption we get of verbal description. Um, so the A, B, C, D, E, A that interrupts there, and, and we get those, those, those visual pointers constantly taking the reader's eye away from the page and back to the illustration, much like Hook's eyes would have been kind of one on the microscope, one on the page. That's, I'm not sure if you know, that's how he illustrated. He always illustrated with one eye on the microscope and one, one eye on the page. Um, so the alpha, these alphabetic markers don't just enable understanding, but they enable the reader to actually become the observational scientist, um, to participate in this act of discovery. And it's in these very careful pacings of these discoveries, in the rhetorical control of his account, that Hook manages to preserve a sense of wonder in his findings. And I'd like to look at just one moment in this extract where we get this sense of wonder. Um, and this is in the, in the closer description of the hemisphere, so it's the, the final kind of uh, clause on that page. Um, and I've read it once, so I won't, I won't bore you again. Um, but what I'm interested in um, is that Hook's wonder appears to be partly articulated through a description of beauty of these hemispheres. Um, they're extraordinarily regular. Um, and you'll notice his very indulgent repetition of regular, um, which is rather superfluous to the sense here. Um, their regularity in shape and smoothness and the evident pleasure which observing them brings offers a fascinating anticipation of Edmund Burke's later definition of beauty as that which is small and smooth and polished. Um, so perhaps we have Hook as, a, as, a, as an aesthetic philosopher as well. Um, and just to, um, just to emphasise my point here about the sense of wonder, um, we have a remarkable incidence of adjectives in this, in this passage. Smooth, regular, exact, regular, perfect, small, vivid, languid. Eight out of 77 words, so eight of, eight of those words of that, of that, so that's an incidence of 10.4% are adjectives. Um, so if we compare us, uh, uh, this incidence of adjectives to a similar length abstract from a recent article in Mi Microscopy, which is entitled Recent Advancements in Structured Illumination Microsc Microscopy Toward Live Cell Imaging, um, just in case of interest, we find an incidence of two out of 65 <laughs> words, um, which is an incidence of 3%, so rather less. Um, and actually, um, one of those is aberrationless, I, th I think, is, is made up. So maybe we can discount <laughs> that. So we're down to 1.5%. Um, 
But it's not only through accuracy or, or of this accuracy of description, um, that through these adjectives that, that Hook achieves this accuracy. Um, we also have two instances of, of metonymic language, simile and metaphor. Um, now, simile and metaphor are traditionally used as literary devices to conjure an image um, and imprint a visual association between the object being described, um, the object being traced in our mind's eye by the writer, and a readily recollected comparator. So Hook, first of all, draws on um, the metaphorical description of the hemispheres as, as being like these small, uh, of being as a small ball of quicksilver. Um, quicksilver is the, the contemporary term for, for mercury. Um, before he then achieves much greater accuracy in his corrective simile. So he first of all says they're kind of like this, but not quite like that. They're actually much like, i.e. much more like, the reflections that they produce are much more like the reflection from the outside of water, of glass, of crystal. Now here again in this list of three that we have, these three comparators, um, Hook is making a very conscious decision to, to offer three very different things. So we move from the very natural water, the surface of water, to the man-made glass, to the extraordinarily crafted crystal, which I think he's thinking about kind of cut crystal here. Um, and it's a, it's a luxury item, of course. Um, and I'm wondering if, if Hook, um, convivial gentleman that he was, anticipated his, his text being read with a decanter in, in reach. Um, and it's at moments like this that we find clues as to who Hook wanted to convey himself as, um, and also who he expected his audience to be. Um, and it's with Hook's audience in mind that I'm prompted to think of my own, and I'm going to draw to a close. Um, but thank you very much for listening. Thank you.